All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Seaweed Brain. It's been a minute. We are going to be talking finally about the ending of The Tyrant's Tomb. It's just the two of us. And I guess in that respect, it is a very special episode. Um, <laughs> stick around to hear more about, um, you know, uh, fire stick explosions. Um, Unicorns, deus ex machina devices, and also New Year stuff. New Year stuff, yes. Let, watch <laughs> us wallow in our failures. <laughs> stick around. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wow. Since you mentioned it just being the two of us, Carter, I was going to mention this at the end of the episode, but I might as well mention it now. We have officially created, finally, it took us two and a half years, a Patreon. <laughs> you can check it out. It is patreon.com slash seaweedbrain. If you so choose to support us, we are very grateful. And as a thank you, we are going to be releasing monthly special episodes that are just the two of us. So if you find yourself listening to these episodes sans special guest, and you think to yourself, wow, this is fun, and not, wow, I hate these episodes where it's just Eric and Carter. <laughs> they don't get anything done, and none of it makes sense. Then you should subscribe to our Patreon. And yeah, we're going to be talking about non-Percy Jackson stuff so that nobody feels left out if they are unable to contribute. It's going to be exciting. It, at this time, appears that the first Patreon inclusion is going to be a conversation about everything, everywhere, all at once. Woo! In time to talk about the epic Golden Globes win before whatever happens at the Oscars. <gasps> well, the Critic Choice Awards just happened. And that as well. lead actress went to uh, Kate. Kate Blanchett. Which I think in that situation, it was because they gave all the, like they gave the film the prize. So I think they were like, we have to balance mm -hmm. it out. Like Kate means something. Michelle yeah. knows that she's a queen because she, you know, is a part of the movie that won, but not good enough. Two nights ago, I <laughs> fell asleep to Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh's Actors on Actors video. <laughs> I just kind of let it play until I drifted off to bed. It was so lovely, like a lullaby. Just Kate just praising Michelle. It was, okay, that was a little sneak preview at what our Patreon episode will look like. We have much to discuss today. First Tyrant's Tomb, and then picking up with the New Year's content, we started the tradition of last year, much to our chagrin, having to revisit what we said we would do in 2022. But let's start off with Tyrant's Tomb. Let's get right into it. Carter, where did we leave off last time? We left off last time with a delightful conversation about Apollo's decision-making process. They had just gotten back to camp with all the necessary ingredients to perform their god-summoning ritual and also to join in the fight against Caligula and Commodus, the two Roman emperors who were attacking, as well as potentially um, the titular Tarquin? tyrant of the tomb, Tarquin, who is going to be coming with a zombie army. Specifically, the last th thing that we had was this internal monologue from Apollo in which he decides that he's going to be summoning his sister, Diana, using the god-summoning ritual. He performs the ritual. It does not appear to have done anything. We don't see Diana. We don't notice any observable changes in the environment. And with that, he is off to join the war effort, specifically by going over to the tunnel to join Frank as the emperors are in the process of getting to camp. 
I just blacked out while you were describing all of that. <laughs> we are at the yeah, shadow, so true, showdown with the effort. That's where we are right now. I feel like we have a pretty solid tradition of getting to the big final battle and not having that much to say. Because Rick is <laughs> Rick does an amazing job writing like the final epic showdown in all of his books, but there usually isn't too much to discuss about it because it's like lots of pages describing physical action, really detailed and wonderful and engaging action, but not a lot of stuff that necessarily requires like breakdown. People have said similar things about, you know, Marvel third acts where it is- People being Linda Holmes. Linda Holmes, as well, you know, as well as many others, but we should say that to us. Linda Holmes, iconic <laughs> pop culture critic, um, has noticed this. And we also noticed this where, um, you know, at a certain point, it becomes less about character development and exploration of themes. And, you know, Rick has at this point crossed the threshold where we are no longer developing metaphors and um, introducing new introspection from characters. And we are just following through on those metaphors as they manifest in well-characterized physical fights. And that's where we are right now. Really, the most important (laughs) thing that happens here is Frank exploding. Yes. The Emperors arrive. They specifically arrive on vividly described uh, chariots that are pulled by Pegasi that have had their wings removed. Absolutely terrifying. If you need to make a character evil, if you're an author and you're writing a book, just have that character like mutilate and treat animals poorly and everybody will immediately be like, that's a villain. Yes. I, wow. This might need to be cut from the air, but I was just having a conversation with someone in which I had to explain about the albatross murders of... Um, I think that we've talked about the albatross murders at least twice. We must have talked about them on the air, right? At least this twice. This is like an important turning point in every, I think, new connection that we make as people who went to the high school that we went to and graduated at the time that we did, which is to say the person I was having the conversation with this time is someone who's going to school for uh, to become a therapist. And they were like, technically, there's not, you know, a peer reviewed scientific literature that says that maiming animals is actually predictive of any other forms of violence or um, that's what they said. What TV show told me that as a kid then? I feel like Criminal Minds is like oh. really talking a big game about all that. Uh-huh. And that, you know, I you don't need us to tell you that CBS is not a fine, um, <laughs> hallowed institution for creating a wonders of insight into the right way of thinking about violence and policing and the prediction of um, atrocities. But basically, this person was like, actually, there's not an established literature to say this, but maybe we should question whether we would need a literature and instead draw a priori conclusions about what it means to be violent to animals. And I was like, you know, that's a good point. I don't need to say that this is psychopathy. I can just say that it is fucked up to um <laughs> to mutilate animals that's bad it is that's bad that's inherently more wrong in and of itself a priority <laughs> um, apollo apparently vomits on the spot when he sees this and like same yeah yeah that's that tells bad. us tarquin bad apollo good emperor's bad apollo good frank decides that he is going to by the rest of the soldiers, campers, we use these terms interchangeably. He decides he's going to buy the rest of the Romans some time by challenging the two emperors to a two-on-two limited battle. Him and Apollo on one side, and then Commodus and Caligula on the other side. They're battling. There are some graphic descriptions. There is a lot of imagery that is leading us to really heavily think back to Jason in the previous Mm -hmm. book, because Frank basically goes up himself against Caligula, who, as you might remember, was just 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 killed um, another Roman demigod in one-on-one combat in uh, the previous book. We're thinking about that while Apollo is kind of 
mostly getting thrown around a little bit by Commodus, who also is his ex. And then the explosion? <laughs> yeah, and then the explosion. Frank sacrifices himself. We've been talking a bit about the firewood, having it come back because at the end of Heroes of Olympus, it wasn't exactly resolved whether or not this was still an issue, but it comes down to it and Frank decides to sacrifice himself. And he says, if I'm going to burn, I might as well burn bright. This is for Jason, which makes the last word Caligula hears Jason, which is very important to everybody, especially Apollo. As Frank sort of explodes himself and his firewood and everyone around him, Apollo escapes out of the tunnel that they were fighting in. So he doesn't know what's going on with Frank. I know based in the fandom that Frank didn't die. So I guess that influenced me. But I had no question yeah. in my head that Frank was not dead. He was going to come back. Yeah, absolutely. It's wild because this was the setup that should have been the most certain death. And yet, based on what we know about Rick and the fact that Frank has all these parallels in his final battle, we literally... There was no way. There was no way Literally that he no was going to also die. Especially because they also set this up. There, there's too much advanced planning for this. Frank tells Apollo in like hushed tones as they're about to do this 2v2 battle that Frank is going to at some point give him the signal and Apollo is going to need to book it out of there. No questions asked. Because Frank has already thought this through. He knows what's going to happen. And we as a reader kind of know what's going to happen. And therefore we also know what's, what's not going to happen. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Frank kills Caligula. Caligula is done. And... I guess this is supposed to be some sort of poetic justice. Commodus is not completely killed, but he is rendered very, very weak. Then Apollo Sings. yells him to death. First, they sing Sweet Caroline, classic. And then Apollo makes a noise so loud that it kills Commodus, which supposedly is the first time his, in his entire existence as a god that he's ever killed someone with a shocking sound wave, which to me was a sort of nod to the passing into nothingness of Harpocrates. Like perhaps now without Harpocrates, Apollo was able to sort of unleash some of that sound power. Okay. Okay. But yeah, then, then Commodus is down. And so then it's just Tarquin. Yes. And a boss level. Do we have any other thoughts about this? I don't know. I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea that we would get rid of two of the three members of the triumvirate in one go in the penultimate book. But there's something about the fact that we do that. And then that's like not even the end of act three that like we have more. Yeah. Like this is sort of like the middle phase of a maybe three or four phase battle. Uh -huh. That feels a little bit strange to me in terms of the stakes that we've set up, especially with Caligula being the one to kill Jason. Yeah, I think I was so involved in in what was going on with Frank at the time that I was reading it that I guess I wasn't thinking about it that hard. I guess having also, again, the background knowledge that the next book is called The Tower of Nero, I assumed that Nero was the one that <laughs> would be the true final boss level that we yeah. would have to worry about. And there are a lot of ways yeah. in which that makes sense. But it does go by very quickly. Yeah, like Nero is the person who we have like more personal... Well, I mean, because he's like Meg's abusive stepfather. It would make sense that that would be that. Anyway, yeah. we do go through it really quickly and we're off. We get an immediate follow-up scene in which we realize that Lavinia has succeeded in her mini quest. As you might remember, she went off with the nature spirits to go fuck shit up on the boat. Because she's with Pocahontas. Because she's Pocahontas. Her and the nature spirit team that she led, they succeeded. Anyway, um, the Greek fire, instead of destroying all of the East Bay, just went straight up and down and destroyed all the ships. Love that. One last thing for us to worry about. The only thing left is to finish the battle and specifically deal with Tarquin, the uh, zombie king. 
And so we're off. As we're walking through New Rome, Apollo remarks that the city is like sort of boarded up. No one is on the streets. It's very eerily quiet as Apollo, like when he first arrived, it was like a bustling town and now no one is around. And it reminded me so much of the Battle of Manhattan when we're walking around the quiet streets of New York and the apocalyptic nature of that, which just makes me think of the pandemic um, and how crazy <laughs> and eerie an empty city feels and how it sets us up for this dystopian final battle yes anyway hazel hazel is there she's ready to square up this is what i mean by the pacing of this there's so much overstuffing in this act some of which i guess makes sense they have to immediately tell hazel that you know frank has maybe just died as far as everyone knows and that she has to emotionally process that and deal with that logistically in the sense that she sends arian off to figure out what's going on and then we're just right back into it we're not done yet um we have our final battle meg is fighting lest we forget Apollo is turning into a zombie. Apollo it's becoming important is still now. turning into a zombie. And Tarquin is there to like fuck his shit up, you know, um, do his whole controlling hand yeah. spreading. I think that's also why I wasn't super miffed by the fast disappearance of Caligula and Commodus because Apollo like is remarking about how much pain he is in through this whole battle and how he can like, you know, barely stand up and it's like more searing pain than he's ever experienced in his life. So it does feel like the stakes are very high. Yeah, yeah. Throughout. This is where we're cashing in on the also turning into a zombie yeah. plot machination that we've been waiting on. A large portion of this battle was him just like lying down and trying to not yet become a zombie with help from, of course, the legendary Arrow of Dodona, who's just like talking to him and being like, let's sing a song together. You're a real person still. And at the last second, it turns out that the God Summoning Ritual worked and that- Oh, Slay, uh, did we have any doubt? Diana's here. <laughs> She swoops in at the last second and stays for maybe a minute to finish off Tarquin, who Hazel had already almost kind of killed. She does the finishing touches, stops Apollo from becoming a zombie. They have a brief conversation that we also talked about a little in the previous episode where Apollo's like, I love you. And she's like, I don't understand what's happening, but cool. <laughs> she's happy to see him. <laughs> she's happy to see him. She does love him, but she also is not, you know, she's still frosty. Yeah. And she zooms out, but not before. Lavinia has a conversation with her in which Lavinia is like, look, Diana, babe, I would totally become a hunter, but I love women and I am way too homosexual to join your group. And Artemis says, quote, I understand romantic love. It's a plague. I don't think we have anything else to say about this that we have not already said. Yes. I'm not 100% on board with this, but like, I guess go off. It's fun in a way. It if you feel this is. represents you, slay. If you don't, that's okay too. <laughs> we understand it's disappointing and um, empowering to different groups of people. Yes, true. This is the part I actually didn't predict, which maybe I should have. The hunters of Artemis also show up, including Talia. And this really, as I was reading, seemed to me to be the 15th time that the hunters of Artemis have deus ex machina a final battle for the main characters of a Rick Riordan book and just won the whole thing for them. It really is wild because conceptually, the hunters are supposed to be independent. They are supposed to be not interacting with the silliness of the mortal world and its social constructs. And I guess there's a way in which it is true that they have a community that is separate, that is nurturing, that gives them things that they need. But also also, like, they have so many responsibilities to so many people and are constantly acting as functionally reservists for militaries of camps with boys. <laughs> 
it is weird, but like, shout out to them. We haven't seen Tali in a minute. And by a minute, I mean since two books ago when she did the exact same thing and showed up <laughs> to save everyone. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And we presume Talia is here because of Raina, who's been writing letters. You know how it goes. <laughs> Do we have anything to say about the vanquishing of Tarquin, especially juxtaposed against the vanquishing of these two emperors in terms of the symbolic resonances? Like, it's not. I think we established that the emperors are supposed to be the last stage battle where the enemy is capitalism and the enemy is human histories of great wrongdoing that are at the foundation of our civilizations. But I am a little less clear on what Tarquin is supposed to symbolize here. I guess we've been given that he is in a, a husk uh, filled with just ambition and not a soul. And maybe that <laughs> is like a enough. husk of only ambition. Slay! Slay! <laughs> And like, I guess that maybe that's like enough for us and that we don't need his death to be a powerful metaphor. And like, he's just killed by Hazel and Diana because they're like strong people who have interests that are not compatible with his. Is it the 11 o'clock battle? No, this is the middle of act two where we are tying up some loose ends before we get to the big 11 o'clock battle, which is the middle of Tower of Nero, like literally the entire mm. middle of the book. Okay. But turns out Frank isn't actually dead. Surprise. Who's surprised? We're not surprised. Maybe you were surprised when you read this book long before us and didn't have everything spoiled for you. But Frank isn't <laughs> dead. This is a good haiku. Do you want to read it, Carter? Oh, yes. Captain Underpants does not appear in this book. Copyright issues. I cackled. I cackled. <laughs> <laughs> and I also was genuinely surprised that Disney has not somehow acquired the ip for captain underpants or maybe they have and that was just the extent of their inclusion of the captain underpants ip that is swallowed up under the disney umbrella i should know this as a bookseller but i actually don't know who publishes captain underpants the captain underpants movie is on disney plus apparently is that the live action one no 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 no. it no, is no, animated no. there's it no live animated. action captain underpants there is not a live action <laughs> captain underpants. well it's only a matter of time oof Everyone else will be like a normal person, but Captain Underpants himself will be CGI'd. I could see that. Or maybe like, it'll be like gritty and like Captain Underpants will actually be like a hot adult. The CW <laughs> TV adaptation of Captain Underpants. Captain Underpants being portrayed by Pedro Pascal. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Carter, do you want to read the explanation for why Frank doesn't die? I don't know if I do. Um... Can you do it though, please? <laughs> Okay, this is from Apollo, I believe. Frank went into that tunnel knowing he might die. He willingly sacrificed himself for a noble cause. In so doing, he broke free of his fate. By burning his own tinder, he kind of, I don't know, started a new fire with it. He's in charge of his own destiny now. Well, as much as any of us are. The only other explanation I can think of is that Juno somehow released him from the fate's decree. There's some double negatives. There's some uh, metaphors. There's some um, plot significance. There's a way in which if we had not seen people undoing death... So recently, we could have been like, I guess you get one pass. And this is a sort of elegant mm -hmm. arc of the book narratively fulfilling pass, yeah. if we were to use one. I actually think having now finished Tower of Nero, and if you haven't read it yet, this isn't a spoiler, so you can hear this. Um, I actually want to say that it's the, uh, it's the latter explanation. It actually is that Juno released him from the Fates Decree because we see Hera, not Juno, but Hera in Tower of Nero completely distraught over the death of yeah. Jason. 
because Mm -hmm. he was really her kid and her chosen one and all of that. And she is so destroyed, no longer wants to play her little games that I could see her kind of withdrawing everything having to do with that scenario and everything that went down in the switcheroo and all of Heroes of Olympus and just kind of like canceling all of that. It is also true that there are some questions to be raised about the Fates' powers at this point and what they mean, given everything that that we have going on with the Oracles. We're going to address that in TON. Correct, yeah. We can explore that more. I feel like I am mildly more satisfied given that additional world building and backstory for what's going on here. It still feels a little bit (laughs) strange to me, but it would be worse writing if Frank died, I think. Something I do really like about this moment is that we bring back a quote from Son of Neptune that Mars told Frank while they were sitting on his bed in the mansion in Vancouver that was important in Heroes of Olympus, but is even more important to the sort of thesis statement of Charles Apollo. Frank sort of regurgitates this quote for Apollo and says, life is only precious because it ends, kid. Uh, mortality, humanity, et cetera, et cetera. Mars meant it as like a pro-war screed, but we're, we're going to recontextualize We're going to think about the importance <laughs> of humanity and interpersonal connections and love and time and how time being finite is what makes it matter. Yeah. Okay. I think we can move on to another mildly important death of Dawn the Fawn. This is supposed to be like the tearjerker death of this book in the way that like Moneymaker, the old dryad dying was big, Pandos. I'm blanking on the name. Oh my Crest. God. Crest. Crest the Pandos. Wow. Just like Apollo. You forgot all about Oh my Crest. God. I'm as bad as Apollo. You are just as bad as Apollo. We need to smite you down to earth and embarrass you to death so that you can become reborn a more humble person. Anyway, Dawn the Fawn dies. Um, Dawn becomes a laurel, I believe, because Apollo. Yeah. And Apollo kind of hates that. Apollo is reminded of like Hyacinth. We get the same little monologue that he gives many times in this book series, but... um. You know, it's important that he he wallows a little bit more. We have not, I feel, still yet had enough accountability from him yeah. about these things. <laughs> the next thing that happens that I find to be important is Talia having a conversation with Apollo about Jason. I did actually really enjoy this because I enjoy every time Talia is on the screen, on the page. Uh, I wish that she gave Apollo a harder time, but I understand that, like, in the first place, she was not very close with Jason. Yeah. In the second place, she's a soldier and she's a leader and she knows that it wasn't Apollo's fault. And she knows that Apollo genuinely wants to honor his memory. It's not her journey to be like mad at Apollo. It's also a bummer that this isn't Talia's story. She is like nowhere near a main character in this book. And so she kind of has to be like, yeah, I forgive you because that's what serves Apollo's arc because this is Apollo's book. Yeah. Bummer. Well, <laughs> speaking of the hunters, this is the most important part of this book. What we are moving into now at the very end here, the reward we get for seeing Reyna suffer for the last nine books yes nine books nine books timeline wise of suffering (laughs) and especially this book of questioning her place at camp jupiter and what she wants to do with her life and her kind of being burnt out from being a praetor it is finally time for reina avila ramirez ariano to join the hunters of artemis (gasps) everybody snaps screams claps cheers Tears. Tears. She's had an arc. She has had a career. How many phases has Reina had in her life? And she's 16 years old that she's already been like, I have done everything there is to do as Praetor and it is time for the next adventure. Like, that's so powerful. And she's also so right. Like, it really is time. She for has the next lived adventure. many lives. <laughs> wow. From Cersei's Island. 
Cersei's well, island. Not the even pirates. from San Juan, like defeating her father to surviving Cersei's island, being pirates, losing her sister, being at Camp Jupiter, destroying Orion, losing Jason, and now becoming pen pals with Talia, and now <laughs> joining the Hunters of Artemis, having some fun. And also, like, how do I say this? Not only is she escaping sort of this old life, she is going into the Hunters of Artemis just as a hunter. She's not yes. the yes. lieutenant. It's huge. I really love that for her. She deserves to have no responsibilities for a while. She deserves to be a 16-year-old who says, I'm going to try a new thing and I'm going to be a beginner. I'm still probably yes, going to be like exactly. a kick-ass, excellent beginner who has a lot of skills I'm bringing with me. But And people automatically look up to. And people automatically look up to. And also, like, probably within Hunter, she's the one who, like, looks the oldest. Because, like, most of them, like, enter at some range from, like, you know, like, 11 through 16. And she's kind of on the older end of that. But all of those caveats being included, it is so true that she needs to have phases and eras in her life where she can try new things and experience care from other people. Yeah. And this is what this is for her. That is so wonderful. If you are 16 or <clears throat> 23 and you are sick of being <laughs> in charge of people younger than you, it's okay to be letting go of some of those responsibilities for a bit. You can go in phases. Yes. You can have cycles. There are other phases of your life. There are other you know aspects of your life that you can cultivate for yourself in which you are not in charge. Yeah. There are phases to be mentors and phases to be students. And eventually yes. you'll be both at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so gratifying to see this arc for her where everyone also, like, it's not just that she knows this, it's that everyone else knows this, that we have this moment in front of the congregated Roman Senate and everyone understands that it's time, that she's everyone given is happy what she her. has to give. She deserves to, to do this. Um, oh my God. Should we read it? Let's read. This is page 405. She sighed and stared out at the dark river. It's ripples curling silver in the moonlight. I don't know if I can explain this. My whole life, I've been living with other people's expectations of what I'm supposed to be. Be this, be that, you know? You're talking to a former god. Dealing with people's expectations is our job description. Reyna conceded this with a nod. For years, I was supposed to be a good little sister to Hilla in a tough family situation. Then on Calypso's island, I was supposed to be an obedient servant. Then I was a pirate for a while, then a legionnaire, then a praetor. You do have an impressive resume, I admitted. But the whole time I've been a leader here, I was looking for a partner. Praetors often partner up, in power, but also romantically. I mean, I thought Jason, then for a hot minute, Percy Jackson. Gods help me, I even considered Octavian. She shuddered. Everybody was always trying to ship me with somebody. Talia, Jason, Gwen, even Frank. Oh, you'd be perfect together. That's who you need. But I was never really sure if I wanted that or if I just felt like I was supposed to want it. People well-meaning would be like, oh, you poor thing. You deserve somebody in your life. Date him. Date her. Date whoever. Find your soulmate. She looked at me to see if I was following. Her words came out hot and fast as if she'd been holding them in for a long time. And that meeting with Venus, that really messed me up. No demigod will heal your heart. What was that supposed to mean? Then finally you came along. Do we have to review that part again? I'm quite embarrassed enough. But you showed me. When you proposed dating... <laughs> she took a deep breath, her body shaking with silent giggles. Oh, gods. I saw how ridiculous I'd been. How ridiculous the whole situation was. That's what healed my heart. Being able to laugh at myself again and my stupid ideas about destiny. That allowed me to break free, just like Frank broke free of his firewood. I don't need another person to heal my heart. I don't need a partner, at least not until and unless I'm ready on my own terms. I don't need to be forshipped with anyone or wear anyone else's label. For the first time in a long time, I feel a weight has been lifted from my shoulders. So, thank you. 
You're welcome. <laughs> Don't you see, though? Venus put you to the job. She tricked you into it because she knew you are the only one in the cosmos with an ego big enough to handle the rejection. I could laugh in your face and you would heal. Hmm. I suspected she was right about Venus manipulating me. I wasn't so sure the goddess cared whether or not I would heal, though. So what does this mean for you exactly? What's next for the Prieter Reina? Even as I asked the question, I realized I knew the answer. Come along to the Senate House. We've got a few surprises in store. Oh. <laughs> I love that. That is so Rick assuming the his readers are intelligent, you know, and not having to spell it out right then and there in that moment. Because we all knew. We felt it coming. Just like we knew <laughs> Frank wasn't dead, we knew Reyna was joining the Hunters at the end of this book. Yes. It's good. This monologue, I think, threads a good line of... Rick being like, I read someone explaining something on Tumblr and I want to put that into this book for young people who are thoughtful and want to be, you know, want to understand the possibilities there are for lives that one could lead. Yeah. And also him being like, you know, this also is something that Raina would say. This would feel revelatory for her and she would try to probably explain this to Apollo, who is also probably confused about what is going on for her and why she would make these choices. Another reason why Rick doesn't have to say outright here, she's joining the Hunters, is because throughout this book, we've had Raina drop these tidbits about like, no, I'm not dating Talia. Why would I date Talia? Like, people can be friends. And then we have Diana herself show up and say, romantic love is a plague. And then Raina once again expressed the sentiment, like, I don't have to be dating somebody. And we know, we just know this is the right place for her at this time. It's very good. Yes. It's so beautiful. We get some nice scenes afterwards. Hazel then takes over as Praetor. Lavinia becomes the new centurion of the fifth cohort, which Lavinia, people have mixed opinions about her. I'm still on team Lavinia. You better watch her back a little bit. <laughs> but um... Oh my God. <laughs> get the setup for the next book. Yes, that's true. We um, go to see Ella and Tyson again. And from part of the sibling books that are tattooed on Tyson, we get the beginnings of the prophecy that will be leading us for the next book. The lines are, O son of Zeus, the final challenge face, the tower of Nero, to alone descend. Dislodge the beast that hast usurped thy place. You might notice here that there is an ABA rhyme scheme. Mm. Apollo notices this. What kind of poetry is that, Carter? I did not know this. It is um, apparently... Here's a rima, I think. It is an Italian form of poetry that Dante uses, which I guess is supposed to be fitting because we're closing the loop on the Roman emperors. But oh, it also cool. gives us a fun little structure where we are going to continually get new lines. This is a poem structure that could, in theory, go on forever um, until, as we find out later on, you just um, add two couplets that rhyme at the end and then signal that it's the end of the poem. But this is telling us that we have more prophecy ahead of us still to um, unravel as part of our quest in the next book. And also that you already know this as listener in 2023, but um, the next book is going to be about the Tower of Nero. <laughs> Slay! Slay! <laughs> yeah, we're going to New York. The Tower we're of Nero. We're going to New York. This is a thinly veiled metaphor for Trump Tower, and we're going to fight <laughs> both Nero, the evil business owner turned politician, as well as Probably as well as Python. Python. Python is also waiting for us. The true metaphor for evil, racism, destruction, and power that stands behind Nero, who is merely a silly little figurehead. We'll have some, some conversations about how this works as a figurehead. How heavy-handed the comparisons, shall we say, get between Nero and modern figures. Shall we say <laughs> the president at the time of the publishing of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. They, they were not playing. 
anyway, that's the end. We could that's say more, end. I guess, but we? we probably shouldn't. I think that's enough. I think we need to take a little break and then we're going to come back to once again, wallow in our failures from last year's New Year's predictions. So stick around. All right, folks. Hey, 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 hey now. Hey now. This is what dreams are made of. I don't know if we have ever mentioned to you before the wonderful podcast, Pop Culture Culture Happy Happy Hour from from NPR. NPR. Starring Linda Holmes, Stephen Thompson, Glenn Weldon, and Aisha Harris. This wonderful podcast has a delightful tradition that we began stealing at the end of last year, where they make predictions, they make resolutions, they set goals for themselves about pop culture consumption, about what's going to happen in the world of pop culture. And then they hold themselves accountable. They review all of these at the end of the year to see how well they did before, you know, setting new predictions, goals, aspirations for the coming year. We love these people. We think that this is a good practice in life. And we have parasocial relationships with all of the lead hosts and many of the recurring guests of Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's true. We do. Wow. The recurring guests as well. Bilal, that's a real one. Um, Anyway, (laughs) Mallory, we love Mallory. Um, Where are we going with this? We're going into our own review of predictions and goals. And then we're going to do some more. So I'm going to play last year what we said, starting with our Riordan verse predictions and then leading into our personal slash pop culture media resolutions. All right, Carter, you are up first. So I have texted us both these clips if you want to play the first one I sent to you just for yourself so you can hear it. Okay. My first prediction has to do with the Nico and Will book. As far as the content of the book, I am going to predict at least two long form flashbacks for Nico. One of which is right around the time of Bianca's death. And the other of which is um, him alone in Tartarus. I expect we're going to get a lot of trauma rehashing in this book. (laughs) Okay, so you are um, off scot-free for this one because the book hasn't come out yet. (laughs) I love saying things that cannot yet be evaluated. Phenomenal. (laughs) No, this is a um, to-be-graded-at-a-future-date prediction. I think I would stand by that, though. That is still a prediction that I feel like is true. Well, when are you going to interject about your meeting with Mark today? Oh, I have a special thing to say uh, at the end of the episode because I met Mark Oshiro today, which you know if you follow us on social media. (laughs) Okay. I guess it'll wait. I feel like vibes-wise, we have been getting little things here and there from Mark and from Rick that this book is going to be a lot. And so therefore, I will stand by that prediction and we'll see what happens. Okay. Do you have anything else you want to add for next year? Oh, predictions to add for this year. Um, What do we have coming down the pike? We have the Nico Will book. We have the Percy Annabeth Grover book. I don't feel like I have anything extra to predict about that. I think Rick has been pretty forthcoming about the basic structure of what's going to happen. And I don't see a point in speculating about which gods he's doing favors for or whatever. Um, I feel like the right thing to do would be to offer a prediction about a casting decision that has not Mm -hmm. yet happened Mm -hmm. for the new TV show. We were just having conversations about the casting for Poseidon and Athena. And I feel like these are the two big decisions that are looming that it seems like they must be strategically waiting on. And in the case of Athena, like that, I don't know if we're even going to find out because that character does not appear in the book. I've been most curious about the Athena prediction for obvious reasons, but it seems like the most relevant prediction that we'll probably know by the end of the year. 
who's playing Zeus and who's playing Poseidon, right? Okay, my prediction is actually based on the way that we've done the casting decisions up until this point that we are going to go surprisingly young for Mm. Poseidon in particular, and that it might even look weird next to Zeus, but that Zeus also is going to be on the younger side. Because we've seen this for a lot of the actors that they've not been, like we've not seen anything close to what we saw in the movies where they look like grizzled men who are established and in the middle of their careers. Like I cannot explain why. And I feel like this is almost certainly going to get me, this is like not actually going to happen. My prediction is that we're going to get like that the closest person to Poseidon is going to be like a Paul Mescal. I feel like it's not going to be literally him. He is um, normal people, most famous now for um, having been maybe engaged to Phoebe Bridgers. I'm not going to predict Zeus, actually. I haven't thought enough about this. I don't know enough about like the g- true depths okay. of genericness of white men, but I'm going to say that that is going to be the energy. Surprisingly young, rising star, vaguely zeitgeisty, Caucasian. Caucasian. Definitely Caucasian, but um, in a way where people will like be surprised. That's the prediction. Yeah. And so someone who's already kind of likable, so we automatically have this affinity yes. towards Poseidon, we don't have towards Zeus. Already likable, established, and this will maybe maybe be maybe their second time playing a dad. Okay, great. Okay, let's listen to Erica's prediction. My prediction for the Riordan verse for 2022 is that we will have a casting announcement for the Disney Plus TV show of all main characters by the end of the year. And I'm going to go ahead and say we will have a trailer, at least one trailer for the series before the end of 2022. And my prediction is also that it will make me cry. When I watch it. <laughs> and I also are, predict are many of you that, will also cry. If they have a trailer, that we'll probably assume that they've like shot at least a pilot then, right? I'm going to assume that they're going to start shooting by the end of 2022. I could be wrong. I could totally be wrong, especially given COVID restrictions and how 2022 (laughs) plays out. We'll see. But that is my 2022 prediction. Okay. Wow. B plus. B plus for me. That's like 100%. What in that was a mess? I am amazed at how little information we had at the start of 2022. Given that those were like kind of like bold claims. But yeah, so we did have... More or less, like you said, there's no Zeus or Poseidon yet. But other than that, we have all main characters announced for casting. We did film almost the entirety of the show. Production is finishing up this week. Literally this week, we are finishing shooting. um, So that's really exciting. That was even ahead of schedule of what I predicted. And we did get the teaser, which we will count as a quote unquote trailer. (laughs) And it did make me cry. (laughs) Okay. Wow. That was excellent. Yeah. A minus. A minus. I'll be generous. I think that you should get a solid like 94% on that, if not higher. Is 94 an A? Yeah. Is it not? For whose class is 94% not an A? What? Wait, I don't remember. It's been a lot. Listen, I didn't have grades in college. Uh, <laughs> okay, so now we have to make a ride inverse prediction. I'm going to be pretty generic and go ahead and say that the sun and the star is going to become my second favorite ride inverse book next to the House of Hades. I think it is going to be extremely impactful, even though I don't have particular emotional attachment to will solace or the relationship that is solangelo i think that my personal connection to nico is going to really cause this book to be a 10 out of 10 for me 
And I am going to say that we will get two more trailers for the show this year. Solid. Pretty pretty generic. Generic, but like definable and um, not... 100% 100% probability. I think there's a good predictions. Yeah. Okay, cool. So next up, we have Carter's resolutions. Oh, I'm a little afraid. <laughs> I feel like low-hanging fruit would be to finally read the fucking Trials of Apollo. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> we can do a joint one of that, but I feel like that's sort of baseline, given that we will moving into the last book that we have read very soon i was gonna pick one of these specific ryder and presents books to mm-hmm. get on my list in addition to the trials of apollo and i had one picked out already but i'm forgetting which one it was dragon pearl yes yeah that's the sci-fi one right mm-hmm. yeah i'm gonna say that that is a um d plus at best because i didn't <laughs> oh even finish the trials of apollo until like yesterday i literally well, we've finished read most of them we've read most of them but that doesn't the goal was completion and completion was a baseline so um i'm gonna say that that was not achieved somehow and i did not read um, the dragon pearl um i didn't do a lot of reading last year if we're being totally honest but i ended the year by resuming my reading habit i did read like a book before the end of the year and I've already read like four books so far this year which is like more than I read in all of last year resolutions wise I will carry over the dragon pro resolution I, I think, have that one if you want it I think I'll do that I should probably throw in two more RRP books for a universe specific reading goal and I mean, I do have like actual resolutions for myself and my culture consumption um, that were mostly taken from what Linda Holmes said on um, the Pop Culture Happy Hour episode, which is to say that I am going to be keeping a pop culture consumption journal and that I am going to be resolving to read a certain number of books this year. I am not going to set the goal as high as her, but I'm going to set it at a modest 12 and i think that that's achievable but also way higher than i've done for basically every year since um leaving high school so we'll see (laughs) okay i love that i think you got this okay uh uh-oh here we go erica i think my resolution for this year is to read one book by every rrp author whoa even if they're not the RRP books. Mm, mm, and to also read some of Marco Shiro's books. Oh, I'll throw that one in too. Yeah, some anger is a gift. I'm like 50 pages in right now. You can do that. I can do that. I know how to read. F minus. <laughs> F minus. <laughs> this year I did read Gracie Kim's new book because we did an episode on it. We did an episode on it. Shout out to The Last Fallen Moon. Can't wait for The Last Fallen Realm, which I will read this year. Um, And I did get about a third of the way into Into the Light by the end of 2022. I am still reading it, which is Marco Shiro's newest book, which is coming out very, very soon. So I did not read Anger's Gift, but I am currently reading Into the Light, which is really gripping. Absolutely recommend it. 
and I did not read any other RRP books this year. So shout out to that. But I was very busy and I read a lot of other cool things and I did some profiles on some cool books and have some cool profiles on books coming up soon. It's true. Which brings me to my resolution, which is to do more writing. And I know that it's important to be specific about your goals. So I would like to do two articles about books this year and two about movies. They don't have to be published anywhere. Um, it would be nice <laughs> if I wrote them for the platform I write for Mixtation Media, but if they don't go into the world, that's okay. Um, I just need to write them because Erica has plans for higher education and needs to get on that. <laughs> well, one of those articles is already booked, right? Yes. One of them is already booked. Fingers crossed. How exciting. Okay. I think I have another half of this. So let's play the last clip. One of my goals for this year is to do more movies, special episodes, so that we can start dipping our hands in talking more about television and cinema as we prepare ourselves for the future of hopefully podcasting about the show when it comes out. Okay, yeah. Wow. To quote Carter, okay, yeah. Um, okay, yeah. <laughs> this is good because while we did not necessarily do this this year, this is carrying over into 2023 because as we mentioned at the start of this episode, we have created a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash seaweedbrain. The link is in our show notes as of right now you are listening to this. Once a month, we are going to, for fun, as a thank you to the subscribers and also because it's a goal of ours, do an episode about external movies, TV shows, books that we love and talk about that, just the two of us. So that's going to be really fun. Very excited about that. As well as after this week, next week, we are releasing a special sneak peek at Seaweed Brain Season 4 episode, which basically just means we recorded an entire episode with special guest Liam T. Crowley about the pilot episode <laughs> of the Disney Plus show, Predictions. I he doesn't use his middle initial professional. Sorry, Liam Crowley. <laughs> <laughs> You'll hear why. And got to start talking about the show, even though it doesn't exist yet. So both of those resolutions from 2022 will be carrying over into 2023. So my goal is that we keep good on our word and release one Patreon episode every month. I'm very excited. I feel confident about that one. I, yeah, I, I think that it'll be close to something that happens naturally, but we'll yeah. um, have more structure and hold ourselves to being a little bit more thoughtful and organized about these conversations. Yeah, yeah I just want to continue to be more thoughtful and organized because coming out of college, I was like, no organization, no thoughts, only rant. And now I'm like, what if I was a little bit more careful about my thoughts and words and had confidence in my ability to articulate myself? Yeah. Yeah. That leaves us with one final special segment on this New Year's Tyrant's Tomb wrap-up episode, which is that I met Marco Shiro today. <laughs> Yay, guys, this was a wild day because I messaged Mark. We had like briefly chit-chatted with Mark on social media before because we were the first people to DM them congratulations <laughs> um, during the Daughter of the Deep live book tour event in which Rick announced that he was co-writing this book with Mark. And we were watching it together on our laptop and immediately I got on Twitter and I was like, Marco Shiro, congratulations. And that was really exciting. But Mark uh, just happened to be in town. So I had them come by the store I work at to sign their books. And they came and were so awesome and like just so <laughs> friendly. And like right away wanted to chit chat about our podcast and about the PGO community and about their book. And obviously couldn't, you know, say anything spoilery, but told me about meeting Rick 
this week, which is why they were in New York and how awesome Rick was in real life. And also just like getting to meet Stephanie Lurie, um, the incredible editor for Disney Hyperion and all of the amazing people on the team that go into Rick being able to release a new book every six months and the machine that that is. <laughs> yeah. Remark talked about like coming from their very small corner of gay YA publishing and entering into this like huge world of literally like celebrity author Rick Riordan and they were talking to Stephanie about like oh well when does all the promotional stuff start for Sun of the Star and Stephanie was like right now so it's going to be probably <laughs> wild has Into the Light coming out and is also doing that whole press tour for that new book but overall Mark was just like again nobody has guessed what is going to go down in this book to the extent that you think you know what's going to happen. Maybe that happens and then so much more. And whether or not this is a standalone or we get sort of more books follow Nico and Will, we know that this is not just like a beginner book. Mark was like, it is balls to the wall. It is not just like a cop out, like setup story, like so much happens and it is a huge adventure and people quote, are going to want to burn down my house is what they said. Um, in a good way, maybe. Oh my. So, oh. <laughs> We will see. Wow. They also signed my um, advanced reading copy of Into the Light, which was very sweet of them and addressed it to me. Wow. That's so exciting. Yeah. It was funny because I don't actually work on Mondays. And so I commuted all the way to my workplace, which is 45 minutes away from where I live. And I waited <laughs> um, until they came. <laughs> and then I left. <laughs> it was so worth it. Lots of exciting stuff coming up. You should subscribe to our Patreon. Wow. It's going to be a good ass year yeah it super is for life but also specifically for percy jackson related consumers and listeners of our podcast specifically for gay <laughs> weed brain percy jackson fans <laughs> this is your year we'll see you guys next time for a little sneak peek and then we will talk about tower of nero i swear to god i promise yes we will finish the fucking trials below <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>